Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Sunday, November 13th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm joined today by Times of Israel founding editor David Horowitz and military correspondent Manny Fabian. Hello to you both. Hey, Jessica. Hi, Jessica. Hi. What are we talking about today? We have this week's swearing-in of the new Knesset, coalition talks, and ministerial jobs. We also have the coalition's interest in reducing the power of the Supreme Court, and we have some major ammunition theft from an IDF base. Before we get started, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachek's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachuklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Okay, David. So the new Knesset is being sworn in on Tuesday. We have the official appointment by President Herzog today of Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister. Give us some of your thoughts about the ongoing coalition talks, uh, ministerial possibilities. What are we writing about and thinking about right now? So we had elections on November the 1st. Um, Last week for three days, the various representatives of the parties uh, met with the president, this formal process where they they suggest to him, recommend to him who he should task um, with putting together a new coalition. Uh, And uh, 64 uh, representatives of 64 Knesset members recommended Netanyahu. And therefore, indeed, um, uh, President Herzog is today charging Netanyahu with putting together a coalition, uh, which, assuming he does so, means he will return to office as prime minister. Um, there are four parties in this nascent coalition, the two ultra-Orthodox parties, Shas and United Torah Judaism, the far-right religious Zionism, and Netanyahu's only could. Uh, he hasn't wrapped up coalition agreements with them, uh, and therefore it's not entirely clear when he will seek to get this government uh, uh, and this coalition approved by the Knesset. It might be this week. The Knesset is being sworn in on Tuesday. Uh, it might be this week. It might take him a little longer. Uh, these are natural allies uh, who supported him uh, throughout this campaign and in, and in previous election campaigns. Um, they're somewhat problematic. Uh, I think even he uh, um, feels that it would be uh, more helpful for him uh, if he had a more diverse coalition, if he wasn't um, at, the, at the more moderate end of this coalition. Uh, but there's nobody else, there's no other parties uh, that are willing to partner with him. Apparently, there were some overtures to Yisrael Beitenu, maybe to other uh, Knesset members in other parties, but so far they've not led anywhere. So he's got this uh, uh, block that he uh, he will take into government now. Uh, he has to uh, um, sort out their various contradictory or competing ministerial demands. Um, religious Zionism did very well in the elections. We've talked about this a great deal. It won 14 seats. 
and therefore its leaders, Bezalel Smotrich and uh, Itamar Bengvir, they want senior ministerial positions. And Netanyahu, I think, is reluctant to um, to give them um, positions that he thinks uh, uh, might cause uh, unnecessary problems for him and for his government and for Israel. Um, but it's hard, it's hard to square that circle. Uh, you've got a party that he depends on for his majority. Uh, it's a technical uh, party. It's, it's merged separate parties. Uh, it might have been easier for him if they'd negotiated with him separately. Um, but they're, they're kind of conditioning each other's participation on them all being satisfied. Um, he's, he's, he's very effective at these negotiations, so I imagine he'll find a, a solution to this. But for example, uh, Bezalel Smotrich would like a frontline ministerial position. He's talked about the defense ministry. Um, uh, he's been linked to the finance ministry. Uh, it seems both of those are potentially problematic. The finance ministry, uh, we hear today, uh, Arya Dari of Shas uh, has consulted with his rabbinical spiritual uh, guides in the party, and they've apparently given him the okay to become finance minister, which is a bit surprising. Um, some Something of a thankless task, but a very, very powerful one. So if Derry, who Netanyahu promised first choice of ministries, is to be finance minister, then the only other two really frontline jobs uh, for Smotrich would be defense and foreign. I don't think Netanyahu wants to give him either, but um, we, we shall see. Uh, and Ben Gvir, of course, wants to be the police minister. The, police, the ministry is called public uh, security. Uh, I think Netanyahu uh, may not be terribly happy about giving Ben Gvir that job, but it seems quite likely that he will be given that job. Um, but the, all, all of these things are, are, are being sorted out right now within Likud, of course, the largest party, Netanyahu's own party. Uh, there are some people who are watching, shall we say, with potential dismay. Uh, if if they uh, um, get to see that all the top jobs are being given to coalition partners rather than to themselves and their party. So somehow Netanyahu has to sort all this out. I'm sure he will. Um, and I'm sure the coalition will be sworn in sooner rather than later. But we've yet to hear how exactly these ministerial jobs are going to be distributed. David, you said at the start that you're not so sure that he really wants it to end up this way. In other words, for these particular jobs to go to these particular coalition partners. What makes you say that? If you look at past history, Netanyahu has been in, in uh, the prime ministerial um, position for many, many years. And over those many, many years, he has generally liked to have parties and prominent figures either side of him on the political spectrum. So he had, uh, way back when, um, nine years ago, he had Lapid and Sipi Livni to his left. Uh, he has had governments with uh, Ehud Barak, uh, in there. He had a partnership with Benny Gantz, which of course Gantz uh, um, says that he breached all the promises and therefore Gantz, who's the outgoing defense minister, says he won't join him again. But it would more, be more convenient for Netanyahu if he had uh, um, ministerial figures and even uh, an entire party to his political left on the spectrum. He's not going to be able to do that this time. And therefore it's going to be him battling um, uh, especially religious Zionism, I think, a party with positions um, to his right, although he's moved to the right, of course. Uh, but that's, you know, precedent suggests that he'd prefer that. But there's nobody else who'll partner with him now, except for these natural allies that he's that he's campaigned with over so many recent elections. 
Right. It's quite astounding to think about all those past partners. Okay. There's something else I wanted to get your thoughts on. This so-called override clause that all four parties in Netanyahu's incoming coalition are interested in legislating, which would ultimately reduce the power of, of the Supreme Court. This is also happening essentially right now, correct? Yeah, I have an op-ed because I am uh, very troubled by it. You know, we don't know the specific nature of the legislation that they're going to going to pass. Um, and I and I note in there that there is, you know, there is there has been support even from within the judicial system uh, for some kind of mechanism in exceptional circumstances where if the Supreme Court strikes down a law um, as being undemocratic or at odds with Israel's quasi-constitutional basic laws. Uh, there have been voices within the judicial system that have said, yes, you know, if there's real concern, there should be some potential for a, a large majority of Knesset members to say, no, we, we need this legislation and we, we're going to re-legislate it despite Supreme Court objections. You know, it's, it's tinkering with the balance between the, the judicial and the executive. Um, the framework for the, for the clause that the coalition, the incoming coalition, um, is planning to legislate, however, is much more draconian. And again, we don't know the specifics yet because they haven't uh, finalized uh, um, the move. But if, as we are given to understand, a simple absolute majority, in other words, 61 Knesset members would be required, only 61 Knesset members would be required to re-legislate, to, in other words, disregard a Supreme Court ruling that said a law or indeed a, a decision uh, is undemocratic or at odds with Israel's, again, quasi-constitutional basic laws, um, that would be quite dramatic. It basically means that you can neuter the Supreme Court with a majority. Now, the coalition has 64 ideologically homogeneous Knesset members. That means that basically anything the Supreme Court decides, uh, the, the, the coalition could strike down. Uh, we don't have the three elements of governance. We don't have an effective... Um, legislature as opposed to the executive in Israel, because the, the Knesset is powerless to rein in a government, especially a government with 64 seats. So it's basically, it would be the government against the Supreme Court, and the government would hold all the power uh, if that kind of clause uh, with, with that framework goes through. Um, one of the reasons, for example, why this coalition would want to be able to disregard the Supreme Court is, as I said, there are two ultra-Orthodox parties in the coalition. Uh, they would want to put an end once and for all uh, to Supreme Court objections to the exclusion of ultra-Orthodox males from the draft. Uh, the, the court has kept preventing that becoming fixed and, uh, uh, and, and legislated because it considers it to be discriminatory. Um, they would want to prevent the court from intervening in terms of budgets for yeshiva students, uh, where again, the, the coming coalition we are given to understand is going to uh, dramatically raise the amount of money, taxpayers' money, that is going to be allocated to people who study full-time. Uh, the, the court could be relied upon uh, to query that and maybe even to oppose it, depending on the specifics. Well, if you have your override clause, you can just disregard what the justices have said. So this is potentially... Uh, I would say very, very dramatic uh, legislation, depending on the specific nature of the of, of the proposal that is advanced. All right, we'll see how that all falls out. Thanks, David. We're going to take a quick break, and when we're back, Manny will tell us uh, about a major theft from an IDF base. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. 
That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Manny, so tell us uh, tell us about this major IDF theft of grenades and and many bullets, uh, five figures, correct? Some 70,000? Yep. So, so break-ins to, to army bases and to, to army bunkers where ammunition is stolen is not new. Uh, but this is probably the largest uh, theft, in at least in recent memory. So uh, in total, 73,556 uh, uh, rounds used in um, all the IDF's assault rifles uh, were missing from the Tsnobar base in the Golan Heights. It's near uh, Katsurin. And uh, 72 grenades that are launched from a grenade launcher that's uh, mounted to assault rifles were also missing. Uh, so really just a, a an enormous amount. We're talking like really, it's, it's very heavy to actually move this. So it, it clearly involved a lot of people to to get this out. Um, so the story basically goes like this. And on Friday night, the police notified the army that a, uh, a gang of thieves had uh, had from the Arab town of Tuba Zangaria. It's nearby. Uh, they were apparently looking to uh, burgle an army base, um, and then the army, by the time it was aware of this, began looking. And then several hours later, they discovered that uh, a lot of their ammunition was missing. Um, several uh, suspects have been arrested, residents of Tuba Zangaria. So possibly the those who were involved but the actual ammunition has not been recovered yet and the army is also probing if soldiers from the base itself uh, were also involved in this burglary because um, army bases should be at least somewhat secure and to get this amount of ammunition out without anybody noticing is is quite significant uh, so, so the army is looking into potentially soldiers themselves being involved in this. Um, the head of the Northern Command has appointed a uh, a general to to head like a panel to to investigate this and and to figure out why this keeps happening. And why I say that is because only last month, uh, thirty thousand uh, bullets were stolen from a base in southern Israel. And that was also thought to be one of the, the largest uh, thefts in recent memory. And then this just gets outdone by 73,000 rounds and, and 70 plus uh, grenades. So it's really quite a significant break-in. Right. Quite very big numbers. And just one more word from you about a story that you've also been following for weeks now, uh, even months, uh, the IDF said that the, that it was looking into um, possibly pressing charges against soldiers um, regarding the death of an elderly Palestinian American man who suffered a heart attack and died after being bound and gagged and abandoned at a construction site. So, if you could just tell us a little bit about where how the story got to this point. In other words. What brought what brought the IDF to this possible decision? Right. So earlier this year in January, uh, Omar Assad, seventy eight years old, he was left uh, in an abandoned construction site, like you mentioned, after being arrested by soldiers, and uh, he he later died, according to an autopsy uh, that the Palestinian Authority conducted. Uh, he died uh, due to a heart attack because of being left uh, in the cold weather and after being um, kind of thrown to the ground and also being gagged for a, a while. 
so that that is um, what the Palestinian Authority is saying causes death. The army uh, is potentially going to charge two soldiers. One is an officer who was the officer of the um, of this team, and one was in charge of looking after the detainees. Several other people were detained in the area, not just uh, Omar Assad. Um, but the army is saying that it can't exactly establish a correlation between uh, the conduct of the soldiers. And they said that the soldiers weren't, you know, they didn't, um, they said irregularities were found in their conduct. So they're saying that the soldiers didn't act correctly, but they can't establish a correlation between the way they acted and the death. So what that means is um, if they are charged, it will likely be a charge over their um, endangerment of Omar Assad, but not causing his death. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see if they are indeed charged. They, the two, the two soldiers, the officer and the soldier, have been called for a hearing. So uh, following the hearing, then indictments may be filed against the pair, and we'll see, depending on 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 how the hearing goes, what kind of charges they'll be uh, they'll be facing. Do we know why he was arrested in the first place? No, he was uh, arrested at random. They were arresting uh, random people. And that is also another thing they may be charged for. Basically, on that night, uh, soldiers had set up a checkpoint at the entrance of this Palestinian town and were just arresting people who were arriving uh, in for no real reason. And then uh, after they moved them to another area, they went back and un untied them and left them there because there wasn't any actual charges against them. The problem is with Omar Assad, they uh, didn't, I mean, they looked at him, they thought, they, they said in the investigation that they thought he was sleeping and they didn't check on him, even though he was unconscious at, at that point. And then after they left, a few hours later, he had uh, already died. These potential indictments is unusual. Usually soldiers are not charged or if they are charged, then the, the punishment may be quite light. But uh, the reason why this, this saga has gone on for so long is because Assad holds American citizenship. Israel has come under a lot of pressure from the United States uh, to investigate this and to bring those responsible to justice. And really, that is uh, the reason here. Last month, the defense ministry said it would compensate uh, his family over the death. Um, if Well, there was an agreement there, apparently, that if his family would also drop a legal claim against Israel, uh, or against the army at least. Um, so... So really, this is a, a kind of a high-profile case, similar to the situation with Shirin Abu Akleh, who held American citizenship. The Americans get involved, and then the army spends a lot longer looking into everything than they would otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these two, these two soldiers, this officer and soldier, may face charges uh, for their for their actions, possibly for uh, leaving Assad without checking on him, or for wrongly detaining him, or something along those lines, but for causing his death, it does not seem like the army will charge them for. Okay. Thanks, Manny. We'll keep on following the story through you. Thank you, Manny, and thank you, David, for being on today's Daily Briefing. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you. We will be back tomorrow with another Daily Briefing, and if you haven't had a chance, have a listen to Friday's Times Will Tell, an interview with singer-songwriter Eitan Peled, who sings in English, Arabic, and Hebrew, both in a solo career and for Israeli pop stars. Thanks. Have a good listen. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? 
consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.